Let me welcome you again to Seven Mile Road Church. My name is Jay Thomas. I'm a pastor here. Uh, this is the part of our service where we press into the preaching of God's Word. Uh, if you're actually joining us today at a pretty exciting time in the life of our baby church, our young church plant, uh, this will be our last preview service. We've been having these monthly services once a month to sort of give you a feel, a sense for Seven Mile Road Church. Uh, we're sort of at the end of that season because we're ready to sort of start a new one. Uh, we're praying about, hopefully in September, beginning weekly services. In fact, September 13th is a date that we've jotted down in pencil, you can do the same, uh, of when we're hoping to actually start weekly services. That's really exciting and a bit intimidating for us. Let me explain what that's like for me. Um, have you ever been to a pep rally? I know that high school was a while ago for many of you, but do you remember being at one? Um, my school, my high school, General Douglas MacArthur in Levittown, New York, had the best pep rallies. I kid you not, compared to no other school, the best pep rallies. For one day, you were actually pumped, the whole school, and you were proud that you lived on Long Island and you went to school in Levittown and you were at MacArthur High School and everyone painted their faces and made signs and held up banners and the band was playing and cheerleaders did whatever it is that cheerleaders do and the whole place was nuts in that good, young, high school fun kind of way. We had the best pep rallies. But we also had the worst football team you could possibly imagine. Uh, to give you an idea, I was on the football team. Uh, that should give you a sense of the caliber of this team, right? It was the same sad story for homecoming every year. You had this grand party pep rally, and then you had the most pathetic game where we got crushed no matter who we played. Uh, we were the kind of team that was so bad, we would get yelled at even when we scored. Let me explain. So we scored so rarely, so infrequently, that when we did, it, it was just pandemonium. We would kick a field goal and we cleared the benches, high-fiving one another, slapping each other. If we scored a touchdown and, and didn't even win the game, we would drench the coach in Gatorade. We were just crazy, right? I, I remember our coach screaming at us, would you please act like you won before? It's just embarrassing, right? We had these grand, glorious pep rallies, but then when you actually saw what everyone was cheering about, what everyone had gotten excited about, it, it just seemed like a whole lot of hoopla for nothing. Because at the end of the day, what you're cheering about, if what you're getting excited for, doesn't pan out. If it's not all that, well then it's just a giant letdown, sort of a huge joke, just a big disappointment. I feel, like it's something like that that we've sort of left the door open to as we get ready to launch this church. We've been talking about this, some of us, for five and six years, hyping it up and talking and getting excited. And, and now for a year, it's like we've had this grand year-long pep rally. I speak to every person that will listen to me about Seven Mile Road. If you give me five seconds, I talk about Seven Mile Road and I've got to smile from ear to ear and I can't help but get excited because I really do feel like this is the most glorious work under the sun. Like, like there is nothing more exciting than being a part of Jesus' mission in the planting of a new church. And it's not just me, there's a whole team of folks that have bought into this vision and for the last year we've been sort of working towards this. The last three months we were here on these preview services, 
casting this big, broad, glorious vision for gospel and mission and community. And we said if we could be a gospel-centered, missional community on mission to our city, engaging our world, then we could just see our city change, lives transformed. Those are some pretty big claims, some big hoopla, pet But the question is, what's left to be seen is, when you actually kick off, will you really have anything to cheer about? Or will you have basically had a, a big party for nothing? Like, uh, I'll tell you some of the questions that sort of nag my heart. Like, what if we start and we don't grow real fast? Or we don't grow at all? Or, or what if it takes us some time to get on our feet and get going? Or, or let me tell you one of the struggles that's constantly waged in my heart over this last year. It, it's that as good as things have been, and they have been gloriously good, no one, as much as I talk about Jesus and his gospel, no one has come from unbelief to believe. No one has gone from doubt to faith for the first time. No one has gotten saved or been born again. Now, I, I would be amiss, don't get me wrong, to discredit or discount all the things that God has done for us. This is evidence of it. But, but every now and then, I can't wonder, I help but wonder, I mean, is anyone ever going to come to faith? Is this gospel really still powerful? Is it really going to change lives? Can it really transform a city, and if anything, a city like Philadelphia? Does the gospel still have that kind of power, and can it happen here and now? And if you're honest, maybe some of you have been there too. Like, maybe some of you know co-workers or friends or family or neighbors or classmates or loved ones, and you just wonder somewhere in your soul, is there any shot that they're ever going to follow Jesus? Like, is there, is there even within the realm of possibility that they're going to come to know the Lord? People you love, people you're building a relationship with, and it's not that you're building a relationship to sneak attack them with the gospel. It's because you love them, but that's just it. You love them, and so you long for them to know the hope of Jesus and the joy of salvation, but you just wonder, does the message of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected still change cities? Does it still change lives? Like, could you have walked into here with no real care for Christ, but walk out of here with a heart that's beating with faith and love for Jesus. Does the gospel still do that? Or have we sort of had a year-long pep rally with nothing to cheer about? Because it's like we're near kickoff. Have we had reason, cause to celebrate? So here's what I want to do today. I want to hope again in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to remind you of why you're a part of a church plant. I mean, just look around you. You're in a church basement with no Sunday school. We've got no youth group. We've got a one-man worship band. I mean, this is bare bones. We've got nothing going here. And yet, I'm trying to tell you this is the most glorious thing that you could be a part of. I do not know anything more exciting. And if you're not a part of this, I'm actually inviting you to consider that Jesus' church is the most amazing thing to touch down in this city and that you could be swept up into 
the gospel in this city. I'm going to show you a passage of scripture so that you and I might have hope again in God and in His gospel. And in seeing what God had done in times past in cities like ours, among the most unlikely of people, you might actually have reason to hope for what God could do in times present in a city like ours among our people. Listen, if Shadow Mavro rests on you or I to keep this going or to pull this off, and we're done. Forget the kickoff. We should just shut it down. But if it rests on Jesus, and it does, and His gospel, and it does, then you and I have great reason to hope. And I want to contend that our pep rally has been perhaps too small and not too big. You see, from the beginning, God has been planting churches in the city by bringing His gospel to the city. We're not doing anything new here. I know it's the 21st century. I know there's a PowerPoint projector and there's a screen and there's mics and speakers. But none of this is new. We're not inventing something. Church planting wasn't our idea. What I want to show you is that what we're doing is being swept up into something that's been happening for two millennia. And that is that from the beginning of Jesus' movement, from the beginning of the birth of Christianity, God has been planting churches in the city by bringing His gospel to the city. So if you have your Bibles, we're looking at Acts chapter 16. It's on page 925. It's the passage that Freddie read for us. We're looking at verses 11 and following. And we're going to be going from Philippi to Philadelphia and seeing how God plants a church in the city by sending His servants and saving sinners. God plants a church in the city by sending His servants and saving sinners. Let's just pray, ask the Lord for His help, and then we'll dive into this text. Lord our God, we come to You desperate for Your help in this time. Because we need You to accomplish what no man can. We need You to penetrate our hearts and cut to our soul. We need your Holy Spirit to encourage us who need to be encouraged. And admonish us who need to be admonished. And rebuke us who need to be rebuked. Convict us who need to be convicted. Edify and strengthen us who need to be edified and strengthened. You know what our hearts need. And so you only can apply your word to that part of our heart. That's our prayer. That as these puffs of air go from my mouth, they will be your word infused with your power cutting us to the heart, causing us to have faith, repentance and faith again in Jesus Christ. Cause people here to hope again, cause me to hope again in your gospel in this city and to trust what the message of Jesus Christ can do. Give it even now and do it through us. For your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're picking up the story at verse 11. This is what it says. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. Okay, let's pause there. Let me just get you caught up on what's happening in Acts 16. In the first 10 verses, you find that Paul and his church planting team have been divinely directed by God to bring the gospel to the region of Macedonia. Okay, so that's Paul and his church planting team. That's Paul, Luke, Timothy, Silas. 
these four guys are bringing the gospel. And they try to go north in the first ten verses, but the Spirit won't allow them. They try to go south, they try to go east, but at every point, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, blocks their way. And then one night, God gives to Paul this vision of a man from Macedonia who calls out to Paul and says, Paul, come over here and help us. And so they discern that the Lord is leading their steps, divinely directing them to Macedonia. So here Paul is, he's gotten this call to bring the gospel for the first time to Macedonia. Macedonia is what we would know today as Europe. So Paul's call essentially is to bring the gospel for the first time to Europe. Now that's a big call. You could conceive or see how that's a monumental task. He's got to bring the gospel to Europe. So what's he going to do? How's he going to go at it? Well, the text tells us that he finds his way to a leading city, a city called Philippi. He's got to bring the gospel to Europe, and so he starts by going to the city. Why? Now, that's a question you're going to have to ask yourself over and over again throughout the book of Acts, because you're going to see that Paul is constantly basing his mission out of the cities. He'll go to Ephesus, this major city in Asia Minor, and then he'll go to Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth and on and on the list goes. All the time he seems to find his way to the cities. Why? Well, Paul rightly understands something that we get now, which is that cities by their very nature wield this incredible power. Cities are centers of influence. Cities are hubs. If you could take get something to take root in the city, well then there's a good chance it will spread everywhere. If you want something to spread through the whole region, well you need to impact the city. Like we know that today, where do ideas, philosophies, culture, customs, thinking, where does it come from? It doesn't come from the countryside or the rural areas or the villages and find its way to the city. No, it's birthed in the city. Lots of people, lots of cultures, customs, thinkers. It's birthed in the city and then it seeps its way out of the city. Like someone once said, if you want to win a lawyer, you might go to the suburbs or the villages or the countryside. But if you want to influence the entire legal profession, where are you going to go? To the cities. That's where the schools are. That's where the journals are published. That's where the laws are made. If you want to win a musician, you might find them in the suburbs or the countryside or the village. But if you want to impact the entire music industry, you've got to go to the city. That's where the recording studios are and the labels are and the movers and shakers are. If something can take root in the city, well then it can impact that entire area. Cities are strategic places, Paul recognizes, for the gospel. Because if the gospel could take root in the city, well then you could assume that that whole region would come to see and feel its influence. In fact, throughout the book of Acts, you're going to read Paul say things like, we proclaim Jesus to all the men and women of that region. And it's not so much that Paul has knocked on the door of every single man and woman and child, as much as it is, his assumption is, well, we've planted a gospel-centered, missional church in the heart of that city, well, then we can assume that that church and its witness and its gospel will touch every part of that region. Cities are strategic places for the gospel. And I want you to know that Paul was right. Because 
Christianity, let me remind you, began as an urban movement. An urban movement. It sprang up and spread throughout the cities. It started in Jerusalem and went to Antioch and Ephesus and Philippi and Corinth and the rest. By 300 AD, historians tell us that about 50% of the cities were Christian, whereas 90% of the village were still pagans. In fact, historians believe that the word pagan came from that idea, that pagan meant those living outside the city. It was the village dwellers and the suburbanites who were sort of outside the move of the gospel. The gospel was spreading like wildfire in the cities. And so if Paul were here today, if he got a call to bring the gospel to America, Paul would sort of head to New York and Chicago and Dallas and L.A. and maybe Philly. What I'm trying to get you to see is you are actually in a very strategic place for the spreading of the gospel. Like, like you couldn't have picked a better spot if you could. God has planted this church in a very strategic place for the spreading of His gospel. Even our little corner of the city, northeast Philadelphia, bears incredible influence around its surroundings. I met this one church planting coach when I got here who told me that he lives in Bucks County and for about two decades, 20 years, he's been watching the trend and he says that as goes Northeast Philadelphia, so will go Ben Salem and Bucks County and the surrounding areas. God loves bringing his gospel to the city so that it might spread from the city everywhere. So Paul needs to bring the gospel to Europe and he heads to a leading city called Philippi. It's a leading city. It's not the capital city. It's not the only urban center, but it's nonetheless an important urban center, maybe like Northeast Philadelphia. And in Philippi, you find everything that you would in any other city, what you'd expect to find everywhere. It's got lots of people, lots of cultures, lots of ideas, highly pluralistic, highly polytheistic. And you're going to see in the story that there's very little room in this city for the exclusive claim of Jesus or his gospel. There's intense opposition to the claim that there is one name above every other name by which men shall be saved. What I'm saying is that Philippi is a very hard city. It doesn't get much harder than Philippi. As you read the story, you're going to find that Paul faces intense opposition for the gospel. Planting in Philippi is like trying to plant a tree in concrete. This is hard, difficult soil. Maybe you feel like that about your city. Like I can't tell you how many people when Shaino and I were getting ready to move here asked us, you're going where? To try and plant a church there? Right? You read the newspaper, you know the statistics of your city. With all its beauty, there's so much that needs to be redeemed and renewed. And perhaps there's a part of you that just feels like this is concrete. How is the gospel going to take root here? But that's nothing to despair over because God, from the beginning, has been sending His servants into the city to save sinners. Watch what He does in Philippi. Verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Okay, I want you to meet Lydia, the first of three people that we'll meet in the city of Philippi. Lydia. 
So here's Paul's basic MO. When Paul walks into a city, his basic practice is to go and find a synagogue. Because he figures if he can find some Jewish men who at least have some background like he does, who at least know the scriptures or know the Torah or know the Old Testament, well then he's got a foot in the door and he's got somewhere to engage them. Like if they know about Adam and Abraham and the promises to David, well he can start filling in the blanks and connecting the dots and showing them how all of it was pointing to Jesus Christ. How Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that they were waiting for. He was the Messiah that they were hoping in. He's the Lamb of God that the sacrifices were pointing to. The one would come to bear the sins of the world. If you could find some Jewish men in the synagogue, he had a place to start. But here's the thing. In Philippi, he doesn't find a synagogue. The implication is that there probably aren't even ten Jewish men, which is the quota that you needed for a synagogue. This is a hard city. Very few receptive ears for the gospel. And so Paul makes his way to the riverside, which is this designated place of prayer. And there he finds a small women's prayer room, just a small women's Bible study, and he meets a woman named Lydia. What do we know about Lydia? Well, the text tells us that she's from Thyatira. That means that Lydia is Asian. Thyatira is a city that you'll read again in Revelations in your Bible. It's a city, a major city in Asia. Lydia's from Thyatira. Lydia is Asian. What else do we know? The text tells us that she's a seller of purple goods. Thyatira in that day was the city known for its rich purple dyes. And so she is from Thyatira, but she's sort of on business in Philippi selling her purple cloths. And you have to know that these cloths are not just the kind of rags you wipe the house with or clean the counters. These are rich dyes. This is the stuff of royalty. And so she's in upper class business. She's a wealthy, like a CEO. So you've got an Asian businesswoman living in Thyatira, but on business living in Philippi. We also know from the text that she ends up making the decisions for her household. And so in that culture, she's either single or widowed, but either way, she's an independent woman. So you've got a wealthy, highly successful Asian businesswoman. The text also tells us that she's a worshiper of God. What's that? Well, you had Gentiles in that day who grew up with the polytheistic gods. They had Zeus and Aphrodite and Diana and Artemis and the rest. And there were certain folks who grew disillusioned with that and became deeply attracted to Yahweh, the God of the Jews. And so they began to read the scriptures and read the Torah and follow Yahweh. And in every sense, they became a worshiper of God, except they didn't want to go all the way and become ceremonially Jewish. And so they remained Gentiles who worship God. So what that means is she's really religious. She's really moral. She's upright. She's decent. So here's Lydia. She's a highly successful, highly well-off, educated Asian businesswoman who is highly religious and highly moral, but lost. She doesn't know Jesus. Watch what God does. God goes after her because God loves sending his servants into the city to save sinners. Verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart and she paid attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, 
come to my house and stay, and she prevailed on us. Did you hear what happened? God goes after her and opens her heart so that she pays attention to what Paul has to say. And Paul begins to connect the dots and show her that everything that she was hoping for, everything that she was attracted to, everything she was trying to become was found in Jesus Christ. He was the fulfillment of the Torah and he was the way to be good. And she believes. That very day she's baptized. And not only that, she actually begs them to come into her home and Lydia... Her house becomes the place where the church plant in Philippi is birthed. And you have the very first member of the church plant in Philippi. Because it seems like the gospel will go after highly educated, highly successful, really upright, religious, moral, decent people. Okay, but God's not done in the city because watch what he does next. Verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met there by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who come to proclaim the way of salvation. I want you to meet the slave girl, the second person that we'll meet in the city of Philippi. So, so here's how it goes. Paul has just had the gospel breakthrough, take root in Lydia's heart. A church is about to start getting planted in her home. And now he walks again to the place of prayer, and all of a sudden, this young girl starts chasing her. Starts screaming, following at the top of her lungs, These are servants of the Most High God who come to proclaim the way of salvation. Except she's not saying this evangelistically, it's more of a nuisance, sort of the way demons would scream out when Jesus walked by in the Gospels. So she starts screaming. The slave girl, what do we know about her? Well, we know that, that she's just a girl. She's young. She's a, probably a teenager, probably Greek in origin. We also know that the text tells us she has a spirit of divination. In the original language, it's actually that the spirit of Python has gripped her. And so there's some dark spiritual force that has enslaved this girl. And her spiritual enslavement has actually led to physical enslavement. Because this power has actually given her the power to tell fortunes. And so a few men have latched onto her, made them, made her their property, and are making a buck off her. She's just a means of gain for them. That's what 19 will tell us. That these men have enslaved her because through her, she's, they're going to make a profit. So she's a slave. She's not top of the social ladder. She's at the bottom. And you don't even get a name for her. She's just a slave girl, sort of nameless. So in Philippi, you have highly educated, really successful, well-off, highly moral, really religious, upright, decent Lydia. And in Philippi, you have lower class, bottom of the social ladder, broken down, beat down, oppressed, spiritually enslaved, physically tormented, nameless teenage girl watch what happens because God goes after her because God loves sending his servants into the city to save sinners. Verse 16. I'm sorry, verse 18. And this she kept doing, that screaming after Paul, for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And at that very hour, it came out. So here's what happens. Paul turns to this girl, captivated by a spiritual power, 
and sort of explodes her heart with a greater spiritual power and says, in the name of Jesus, come out. And at that very moment, the spirit leaves. And she's set free. And the name above all names has set her free, set her free spiritually, which leads to her being set free physically. She's free. And the text doesn't tell us, so I'm assuming a bit here. But I imagine that the name that set her free becomes the name on her heart. That the Lord who set her free becomes the Lord of her heart, and you have the second person in the church plant in Philippi. As it seems, like the gospel saves highly religious, well-off, highly educated, successful, moral business people. But that same gospel in the city seems to save downtrodden, lower class, oppressed, beaten down, spiritually enslaved, physically abused, nameless teenagers. But God's not done in this city, because watch what he does next. As you keep reading in verses 19 and onwards, you find out that freeing the slave girl will mean for Paul some massive persecution. You see, remember, 19 tells us that this girl was the property of some men, and now Paul had basically cost them their business. In setting her free, they couldn't take advantage of her, use her, abuse her to make a buck. And so what these guys do is they get ticked. Their means of gain is gone, and so they grab Paul and Silas, and they drag them into the center of the city, bring them to the marketplace, and they stir up a crowd. And they say to this crowd, these Jews, and you can hear the racism flowing off their lips, these Jews have come into our city and are advocating a culture and customs and a way of life that is foreign to us Romans. And that's all it takes for that racist crowd to get riled up and pummeled down and beat down on Paul and Silas. Some local magistrates show up, that's local city officials, and instead of working for justice, these guys join in by stripping them of their clothes and beating them on the back with rods. We're going to pick up at 23, but can I pause for a second? Do you see the impact that Paul's gospel is having on this city? Like this gospel doesn't fit quietly within four walls or tucked away in the privacy of one person's heart. This gospel is touching everything in Philippi. It's touching jobs and economy. It's, it's touching the local business. People are going out of business because this gospel is setting people free. Like, imagine if, if the gospel at Seven Mile Road had that kind of power. Like, imagine if drug dealers in Northeast Philadelphia and Philadelphia started losing business because teenagers got free, were set free by the name that is above every other name. Like if businesses profiting off sin lost business because of the gospel that was not tucked away within these four walls, but were overflowing the banks of this place and our hearts and impacting this city. They say there's a cowgirl, some what, what Seattle Times calls a PG-13 strip club, about to open two miles from here. Like, could you imagine how, how it would be if two months later that place closes down? Because the gospel goes from here and men are not going to go because they're going to be faithful to their wives and faithful to God. And women are not going to work there because they're going to be faithful to their husbands and faithful to God. And, and the place just loses business because the gospel goes forth from the walls of this place. 
I know those are high in the sky kind of dreams, but I just see Paul's gospel wreaking havoc on the scene. It, it, it doesn't just fit here. It touches everything in Philadelphia. And what if the gospel did that in Philadelphia? It'll come at a cost because you, you see that these guys get beaten down for it. Verse 23. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he, that is the jailer, put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. I want you to meet the jailer, the third person that we'll meet in the city of Philippi. What do we know about him? Well, we know that he's probably a Roman and probably an ex-soldier because it was those kind of folks that got these city civil service kind of jobs. It, it was ex-military guys back home from the war that got to work in the city prison. And, and so we know that he's working the city prison, probably just doing his nine to five. This kind of job wasn't upper class wealthy like Lydia, nor was it lower class bottom of the ladder like the slave girl. It's sort of in the middle. These kind of jobs where you're nine to five, blue collar, put in your hours, grab your paycheck, go home kind of jobs. So we've got a Roman ex-soldier back home from the war, working the city prison, blue collar. He's probably hardened by life, hardened by war, hardened by people. After all, his job is to spend every day with the worst of the people in the city. He's around criminals all day. And the text tells us that he actually takes Paul and Silas and puts their feet in the stocks. The stocks in that day were this ancient tool that sort of twisted your body and contorted you and spread your feet apart and put you in pain. It takes a certain man to be able to do that day in and day out and hear screams and hear wails and be around the worst of people, seeing the worst kind of people. So you've got this blue collar, hardened by life, ex-soldier back home from the war, sort of indifferent, seeing the worst in people. But watch what God does, because God loves sending his servants into the city to save sinners. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. So here's what happens. Paul and Silas, their wounds are still flowing from the morning's beating. Their feet are in the stocks. They're in prison. And at midnight, their response is to sing hymns and pray to God. So much so that their music is filling the entire prison. The jailers are hearing them. The, the prisoners are hearing their song. And at the midnight hour, God shakes the very earth to set his servants free. The prison doors go open. The stocks fall off. The chains are removed. And these men stand free. And now the jailer sees something he's never in his life seen before. Verse 29. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. 
and he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. He sees these two men who have been unjustly beaten down by a racist crowd, unjustly thrown into prison. He's participated in this injustice, putting them in prison. Their response is to sing to God in the midnight hours. This God shows up, shakes the earth, sets them free. And instead of leading a prisoner escape, or grabbing the nearest sword and cutting his throat, these two men say, do not harm yourself. Because this guy does what any good Roman soldier would do. He grabs the nearest sword, he's about to kill himself, because if his superiors find out the prisoners have escaped, he's done. And yet, instead of taking his life, these two men save his life, and then save his soul. Because this man who has spent his days seeing the worst in people, see two men who should have ended his life, saving his life. And this God, whoever he is, that they have been singing to the whole night, shakes the earth to set them free. And so his response is he falls to his knees and says, whoever that God is, I'm on the wrong side of him. What must I do to be saved? How do I get right with that God? And that very night, they speak the word of the Lord to him and his heart is opened and he's baptized and he invites these two Jews. He's part of this racist city. Hours ago they were enemies and he brings them into their home. He washes their wounds. He gets baptized and he sets a meal before these two Jews and they spend the night hours eating and singing to God, praising the Lord because they were now brothers together seems like the gospel goes after blue collar, hardened by life, indifferent, nine to five, just give me my paycheck, let me go home, men and women. Are you seeing what the gospel can do in the city? Are you seeing why we can have great hope for what God can do in the city? Because this gospel seems to save upper-class, wealthy, highly successful, highly educated, really religious, moral, good people. But this gospel also seems to save lower-class, beaten down, oppressed, physically abused, spiritually tormented, nameless, taken advantage of teenagers. But this gospel also seems to save blue-collar, nine-to-five, indifferent, hardened by life, just leave me alone, men and women. What else does that in the city but the gospel? This gospel cuts across age and gender and ethnicity and race and background and social standing, all of it. You've got a man and a woman and a teenager. You've got a Roman and a Greek and an Asian. You've got the rich and the poor, the wise and the stupid. You've got them all sitting at the same table as brothers and sisters with one God in heaven. Are you seeing what this gospel unleashed in the city does. So here's the thing. What do you take away from that? We could spend a bunch of our time looking at Paul's methods. Like how God goes after them. He, he seems to go after the religious guy, the, the religious lady, in, in a Bible study. That makes sense. And then there's the slave girl captured to a spiritual power, and, and he, there is no Bible study. 
he seems to just show up with spiritual power and a demonstration of the name of Jesus. And then you've got this blue-collar guy who's seen the worst in people and there's no Bible study and there's no spiritual demonstration. In fact, it's just a, a demonstration of a kind of life he's never seen before. And in different ways, God uses his servants in the city to save sinners. But here's what I want us to take away for today. Because I imagine when this report got back to Jerusalem for the folks who were waiting to see what happened, I don't imagine they sat around going, how great is Paul? I mean, he's a killer church planter. This is unbelievable. We should send him everywhere. I imagine that their mouths sort of just drop and, and they're just stunned looking at each other and no one can speak until finally someone breaks the silence and says, the gospel just penetrate Philippi? Is a church being planted in Philippi? Is the gospel now saving Romans and Asians and slaves? The Jewish creed was, thank you that I'm not a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. And did the gospel just take the woman, the slave, and the Gentile and bring them in so that they too are brothers and sisters? Did the message of Jesus just win Philippi, Philippi of all places. And I imagine that they looked around and just said, God is such an incredible church planter. His gospel took root in Philippi. This is why Seven Mile Road exists. This is why Jesus is planting a church this time in Northeast Philadelphia. Because there are Lydia's slave girls and jailers all over this city. All over this city. And you are God's servant sent to this city that He might save sinners. Like maybe as you've been hearing this, you've already profiled in your head. Maybe you know that really well off, really educated, really put together, successful, really moral man. He doesn't cheat on his wife. He doesn't cheat on his taxes takes his kids to soccer, he's trying to be a good dad, he's trying to do the right thing, but he doesn't know Jesus. And you just wonder, is there any shot that he's going to come to know the Lord? But God save Lydia. Or maybe this September, you drive down Bustleton Avenue, and around 2.45, 3 o'clock, you pass George Washington High School, and out comes streaming 2,400 teenagers. Nameless. They don't have a name to you. They're just faces in the crowd. And I can assure you that some of them are among the lowest in the social life. Some of them are physically abused. Some of them are in spiritually dark places. And you just wonder, are any of these young people going to know Jesus? But God save the slave girl. Or maybe, and I have a face in my name, in my mind, of a blue-collar, hard-working woman. She just puts in her 9 to 5. She doesn't smile often. She probably doesn't hate my God. She just doesn't love him either. She just wants to be left alone, put in her hours, grab her paycheck, maybe go home and watch the game. And I wonder, is there any shot that she's going to fall to her knees and say, how do I get right with God? What must I do to be saved? But God saved the jail. You see, this is why... A seven mile road is being planted by Jesus Christ. 
because there are Lydia's and slave girls and jailers all over the city. So if you're here and you're a Christian, and I talk to you for a second, if you're not a Christian, you can tune me out for a second. If, and if you've been in church, but you just need some time to heal, maybe you've had some bad experiences, you just need to get right with God, you can tune me out for a second too. But if you're a Christian, that is, you've been following Jesus, you know the Lord, can I say something to you? God has planted in many of your hearts a longing for mission. I applaud that. I love that. But so often we take mission and we translate it as something that happens way out there overseas. Like something that happens once you board a plane and go to some end of the earth. Hear me. Let me tell you what someone once told me. Really wise words. He said, crossing a sea doesn't make you a missionary. Seeing the cross makes you a missionary. I'll say that again. Crossing a sea does not make you a missionary. Seeing the cross makes you a missionary. Geography will never compel you to share the message and mercy of Jesus. If it does not work in Philly, it will not work in the ends of the earth. And if it works in the ends of the earth, it will work in Philadelphia. Listen, on the day when Jesus calls you to go to India or China or France, I promise you, I will celebrate. I will drive you to the airport. I will carry your bags to the, the gate. I will buckle you into your seat. And we'll celebrate that we get to send you. We will. But till that day comes, don't sit on the bench waiting for mission. Because there are Lydia's and slave girls and jailers all over your city. And God has placed you here now. He's put you here now. Be on mission now. Participate with Him. God once sent servants to you to save you a sinner. So that today you might be His servants that He might save others. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, would you tune me back in for a second? Maybe you're wondering, what am I even doing here? This guy's crazy. This whole thing is nuts. You just hear me for a second. Maybe all of this doesn't make sense. Maybe it doesn't all click or connect. But just maybe, as you're hearing these different stories, something in you resonates, connects, identifies. Like maybe you hear of Lydia and you know what it's like to do well in school, to have a good job, to earn a good paycheck. You're trying hard to be good and decent and right, and yet something was missing down, you, you don't know what it's like to love Jesus. Or maybe you feel nameless. That's what you feel like in a crowd. Taken advantage of. Imprisoned. Oppressed. Like you're trapped. And you're longing for something to set you free. You're longing to be free. Or maybe you don't hate God, but you just don't love Him either. You just want to put in your hours, go home, do your time. Just leave me alone. Wherever you might be, this is why Seven Mile Road is here too. To invite you to a journey to discover the answer to all these, Jesus Christ. The answer for the religious person, Jesus Christ. The answer to being free, Jesus Christ. The answer to having your heart broken and getting right with God, this is what we invite you to be a part of. And I tell you how this story ends, how 
this church plant goes down. It ends up that Paul ends up writing a letter to the Philippians. It's in your Bible. It's the only church in the New Testament that doesn't get a rebuke, that doesn't have something massively wrong. In fact, the only thing Paul has to say as he opens the letter is, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out into completion. That's our prayer for Seth Monroe. We invite you to be a part of it.